You know, I've got to say one more thing before I take us into a new text. Because last week, I had one main point I wanted to make. I made it in the second service. I did not make it in the first. All right? So I've got to say this. Do you all remember if you were here last week? I told this story of Peter Marshall getting up, uh, speaking to the cadets at Annapolis, and God changing the message on his heart. Um, and he preached out of James, and he preached about uh, what it's like to die. What I, and, I, and I shared that. He shared about the, the little boy with the terminal illness. I shared the story. And I got so caught up in the story, I forgot to tell you the punchline. It's been bothering me all week. So I said, I'm going to tell him. And uh, the punchline was that day, that Sunday morning, was December 7th, 1941. And he was driving away from, after giving that talk, and on the radio, uh, he and his wife Catherine heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And, uh, he had, and those cadets were immediately within the hour of his talk uh, called to go serve many of them to their death. Uh, pretty incredible, uh, God's faithfulness uh, to give them what they needed to die well. Okay? So now you've heard last week's message. Okay, I feel better. Um, all right, hey, I want to do this today and next week. Uh, I've been just wrestling with how to frame this, um, but I've, I've had just stirring on my heart all summer. I have loved this, um, this series on the life of Abraham, and I've had stirring on my heart all summer um, this, uh, this question of what is God really up to uh, in our body, in this unique season. I think it's a question we've all wrestled with. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, on January the 17th, just, just an hour or so after uh, the crash, uh, my wife had received uh, a call from, from Kathy Tucker. She knew uh, that the plane had gone down. She didn't know yet whether um, I was going to live or not. She um, uh, her father, fortunately, was in town and had taken her to our house, and, and she was just, uh, she was in the entryway of our home, Catherine was, and she was just uh, laid down on her face, just, just crying out to God, uh, probably somewhat disoriented and certainly desperate, and it was in that posture and in that moment that uh, there was a knock at the door. She's literally laying in the entryway, and she looks up, and it's, uh, it's uh, a couple of our elders, and Rex Jones was one of those, and and uh, they just walked in, and he scooped her up and said, um, God is up to something. I don't know what, but God is up to something. Didn't say much else, said, we got to get you to Texas. God is up to something. And um, I believe with all my heart that Rex is right, that God is up to something. And one of the things I've been yearning to be able to tell you is precisely what he's up to. <laughs> uh, so disclaimer, I'm not going to do that this morning. <laughs> I'm still, still working on that. But I do know he's up to something, and I think there's a posture and a pursuit that he wants us to have as a body as he reveals to an ever-increasing degree what he's up to. Amen? So our text for this morning will be Isaiah 55. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I want to read you this. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, 
and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of God for the people of God. The people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd help us um, in the text this morning, that you'd have a word for us. A sure and steady word that would be a word of comfort, a word of healing, a word of salvation, a word of assurance, a word that would give us an increasing hope in what we know to be true. You're a faithful God and you're working redemptively even in the tragedies of life. You're working to make all things new. We trust you with that. Lord, I pray as I preach this text, I would decrease, I must. And Lord Jesus, you must increase. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, God is up to something. That's my thesis statement today. God is up to something. We've learned in this uh, Abraham, this series on the life of Abraham, at least I've learned, that uh, oftentimes when there's a shaking in your life, when it seems like God is shaking us, I don't know how, to, how else to better say that, when he's, when he's uh, messing up our nest, when he's disrupting our plans for his purposes, that it's not a cruel thing that God does. You guys might remember the illustration I gave a few weeks ago uh, of the lumberjack. The birds might have thought that lumberjack beating on their tree, disrupting their nesting until they finally made their nest in the rock. That bird might have the perspective, this guy just wants to make my life miserable. But if you really see what's going on from the lumberjack's perspective, he's merciful. And when God shakes us, it's a merciful act of God to draw us near to himself at a time where he can be found. And I'm convinced that there is an opportunity, there's a window for Harvest Church today in this season to seek the Lord while he can be found, as our text says. Uh, no doubt in my mind that January 17th was a shaking for our church. Uh, that really shook us. It shakes us. That ongoing reality of its effects is a shaking reality. Uh, the loss of Bill and Tyler and Tyler and Steve is no small loss in this church and in our community and most significantly in their families. The loss of their presence and their leadership, 
their friendship, their love is no small loss. And yet I want to remind you that January 17th was not an accident. That everything that happened that day happened within the scope of God's sovereignty, within the scope of his sovereign plan, under the care of his watchful and providential eye. We can be assured of that, and we can be assured of this, that he will, as Jamie so beautifully reminded us in the weeks following the crash, where we went straight to Romans 8, and we got a lot of promises in that chapter of our Bible. And one of them was that he will work all these things Everything that you're, every circumstance, every suffering that you go through, he's going to work it for your good and for his glory. You can, you can underlay this message in that promise. We don't know exactly what he's up to, but we do know it's for our good and for his glory. Amen? We know this to be sure. And we know God is up to something. I think a word for us, for the posture and the pursuit of our body is here in Isaiah chapter 55. Let me walk through this text. I I, I talked about it a little bit at a men's Bible study a few weeks ago, and I told the men there that it deserved a much more full treatment, so I hope to give at least a little bit more towards that end this morning. Verse 1, Isaiah writes, come everyone who thirsts. You know, I, I think that when something like this happens, and I won't belabor it, so to say, forever. We won't always be talking about it. But still in the sensitivity and tenderness of the moment, um, I want to be sensitive to what God's teaching us. I want to be sensitive to what God's doing. I don't want to miss it personally, and I don't want our body to miss it. I think there's more to be probed here. I think that what happened over the last seven months, for many of us, because I've heard it from your lips, has created a great hunger and thirst a great spiritual hunger. If you went to any or all of those four funerals, I listened to them all holding Catherine's hand in a hospital bed. When you, uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, sometimes it's better, well not sometimes, he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because when you are at moments like that, you kind of stop and go, man, what is life really all about? You kind of do it, a check on your life. It's just innate to us somehow. And, and you ask the deeper questions. Solomon says, it's more important for your soul. There's a time for mourning and a time for feasting. But the one that serves your soul more is the time of mourning. Because that's where you really, in your vulnerability and weakness, you let God in. You invite God in. You cry out for God to come in. And God works, and there's transformative work that God does. It's a deep critical work in our souls during those times. There's a thirst that God's created in our body. There's a hunger. We want to we know God. We want to know what he's doing. We want to know what he's up to. And the text says, come. By the way, God's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid for you to look up and say, what, what are you doing, God? He's not afraid of that at all. He invites you to ask. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. There's a contradiction there. I hope you saw that. You who've got nothing, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, the good stuff, without money and without price. So three times. You got no money, no money, without price. Verse two, why do you spend your money, God says, through Isaiah, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. You know, I think 
when God shakes us, one of the most critical things for us to evaluate in our own lives is what are we hoping in? What kind of race are we running? What are we after in this life? It's a great moment. Uh, I think what happens very naturally, especially in our generation and in our country, so in the day we live in, in our society, in our culture, this statement wouldn't be made across all of church history. But for us today in America, there's, there's a great danger that we would try to find significance and we would try to find joy, we would try to find peace, and we would try to find satisfaction, fullness, something to satisfy our hearts that ache for satisfaction and fullness, that we would try to find it in worldly gain, that we would try to find it by climbing the rungs of a ladder, a ladder that uh, prominence and position and power and pay, and we would climb these rungs until we inevitably get to the top of a ladder and realize that it led nowhere. And then being at the top of such a ladder, instead of realizing the folly of our ways, we would simply go to another ladder, assuming that it would take us somewhere where no ladder can take us. Not realizing that, not realizing that every ladder we try to climb in this world leads us to emptiness. It's God who came down to us in Christ, revealed himself to us, that did the work that satisfies our hearts, the work of spiritually atoning us from our sin, and says, come receive me. You got nothing. What you need to satisfy that heart that longs, for, uh, longs to be known and longs to be loved and longs to be full, you can't buy it, but you don't need any money to buy it. Because I came and I paid your debt, and I invite you. If you're thirsty, come. Receive what I've earned on your behalf. You know, uh, I read over the, uh, about a month ago and was going to share it then and didn't get a chance to, but it stuck with me. I read recently the conversion story of David Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous uh, early 20th century um, uh, pastor, preacher in England. And um, in, in his early 20s, he had actually gone through med school. He was the best and the brightest of his med school class. He was working at St. Bartholomew Hospital in London, which was the elite of the, it's the oldest hospital in London. It was the most prestigious. He was chosen among the residency uh, that he was in to work there. He was known to be the top uh, uh, up-and-coming doctor they had. He was put under the chief of medicine at St. Bartholomew. So, I mean, the, the world was his oyster, so to say. And uh, something happened in that the, uh, the man that he served under, the chief of medicine for all of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, England, in the 20s, uh, he uh, began to date a woman. They got serious, um, and he was uh, engaged to marry her, and then she fell very ill, and she died. And he was so shaken, naturally, as you would be. And so he comes one day to... Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's, uh, the, the, the place that their quarters were in the, on the hospital grounds. And he knocks on the door and, and without saying anything, comes and uh, 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 Lloyd-Jones had a fire going and the man sat down and just stared at the fire. He didn't say anything. The man sat there and stared and for two hours he stared at the flames without saying a word. And I don't know, well, I don't have, we don't have any record of what was going through, what, what God was saying to that man. But Lloyd-Jones had this epiphany watching 
his mentor and the chief of medicine at St. Bartholomew's staring into the flames. And the light bulb that went off for Martin Lloyd-Jones is, the best I'll ever be apart from God. It was a Solomon moment that everything under the sun apart from God is meaningless. He, he thought he saw, he saw down the road to himself sitting in that chair, singing, uh, staring into the flames, realizing that if I build my house on anything other than the rock of God, it's a faulty foundation. This man had everything and he had nothing. When tragedy came, there was nothing that held him. And Lloyd-Jones knew then I better not climb these rungs of the ladder of position and prominence and power and pay. I'd better get to know God. He's the only one that can hold me in the turbulency of life. And he's the only one where I can have true joy and true peace in the midst of a fallen world that's now and eternally. The light bulb went off. He was never the same. Matter of fact, God would call him into vocational ministry. He would leave the, uh, the medical field to preach the gospel because of that moment. We talked about Abe. The reason he was a man who walked by faith was that he was looking forward to a city that has foundations. Well, I don't know how many fires there were in your homes in late January and February and March. I don't know how many of you sat and stared at the flames and asked the question, what is God doing? But I hope there were many. I hope there were many of us saying, God, what are you doing? And I hope that you heard in the quietness of your heart, not nothing, but the voice of the Lord whispering, come to me, come to me. You're hungry, you're thirsty, come to me. Don't look to the world to solve this, to explain it away. Don't merely look to the comfort of your friends or any other comfort that might escape your trouble. Come to me. Drink deeply. You can, you can almost hear the words of Jesus in John 7. You guys remember at the, uh, the last day of the Feast of Booths, six months or so before he went to the cross at, at, um, at Passover and was crucified for our sin. Six months previous, the last day of the Feast of Booths, uh, that's a feast where for a week they, they live and tabernacle together in tents as, as the people of Israel. And on the last day, the high priest would lead them down to the uh, pool of Siloam and take a golden chalice, and they'd come back singing the songs of ascent. And then he'd quote out of the Messianic Psalm uh, in 128, or I'm sorry, 124, and he would quote, and he would read from the temple steps. And, uh, and he would read that, uh, he would say, God, save us, deliver us. This is the day the Lord has made. We're going to have joy today. A supernatural joy. We're asking you to impart that to us because you're a God who's going to save us and one day you're going to send a Messiah. And they would, they would quote this Messianic Psalm and he would pour out the water from the Pool of Siloam onto the uh, Temple Mount, onto the sacrifice made there. And it was in that moment that Jesus stands up amidst the thousands and cries out, John 7, anyone who's thirsty, come to me. You talk about a controversial moment. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. If you believe in me, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. You can imagine the Pharisees, they wanted to kill him. They literally went right then. Somehow he disappeared into the crowd. Jesus has always, his ministry has always been, if you're thirsty, come to me. Isaiah says, listen diligently and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear Come to me, hear that your soul may live. 
uh, I guarantee you, I guarantee you if, uh, if we could only interview just, just, just for three or four minutes, if we could just get a glimpse into the heavenly reality where those four men are, if we could just ask them to give us a word, it would be something around seek the Lord. Take your pain, take your grief, take your questions, go right to them and drink deeply so that your soul may live. Life's found in the Lord. It's found in his word. Don't go anywhere else. Don't make the mistake. Don't play the fool of chasing merely the American dream. Go straight to the Lord. And he says here, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. It's the covenant he made with his, his, uh, with his servant David, the Davidic covenant, which two things that covenant said was, one, my love will never leave you. You come and you drink from me, I will love you now and forever. And then he also said, you're going to inherit a kingdom that I will establish, that the Messiah, the greater and truer David will establish. You're going to inherit it with me forever. Come, receive my love, receive my kingdom. That's the invitation. Jesus in Matthew 11 said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you'll find rest. He goes on to say, you'll find rest for your souls. I don't know how much uh, angst you felt over the last seven months, whether that's just a, a, a fear. Your heart may have been shrouded out by fears, by doubts, by anxiety, by the uh, lack of control that we have over life and certainly death. Jesus' invitation for anyone who's thirsty in the shaking of our body through this is that you find rest for your soul. You're not going to find that anywhere else. You're going to find that in Christ alone. And he says, behold, I made him, this is David, a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the peoples. But then Isaiah looks through, as he often will do. He looks through David to the uh, son of David to come, to the Messiah to come. He says, behold, in verse 5, you shall call a nation that you do not know. This is Jesus. When the Jews reject him, there'll be a people that are not a people, the Gentiles, that will come to salvation in Christ. There'll be a nation that did not know you. That's the Gentiles. They'll run to you. I read this this week and just was immediately reminded uh, in the Harmony of the Gospels, which is a great study tool, it, it, it lines up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, it, and, it, and you can read them. It, it places them in chronological order all the way through. And if you read Matthew 11 where Jesus gives that call, hey, anyone who is weary, come to me and you'll find rest for your soul. He finishes, it's, it's, it's like the, the invitation at the end of a rather lengthy sermon that he gives on the streets. And then, if you read the Harmony of the Gospels, you see the very next thing he does, he retires into the home of a Pharisee for lunch. He goes into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And the very next thing that happens from this invitation he gives on the streets into this uh, lunch at Simon the Pharisee's is he's there reclining, he's there eating, and shortly after he gives this invitation, he's reclining at the table, and a woman comes barging in. And it's, it's a woman who's a woman of the street. She's a prostitute. And, and the Pharisees, of course, they're offended that she does this. But she comes. And the only, the only, only uh, time that it elapsed between his invitation and her coming was that she went home and got her most precious possession, which was her perfume that would be, that would be uh, hers to give to her husband on her wedding night. That was the tradition in her culture. And she comes and she breaks open that vial of expensive perfume and she washes Jesus' feet. That the one who's desperate 
doesn't inch their way towards Christ. It's not just a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more closer. They come running. The invitation is for anyone who hungers and thirsts to run to Christ. And I want to show you this. Verse 6 would be the linchpin verse of our text. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I've just really been struck by these words. Uh, In a theological sense, I don't know that there's a time where the Lord can't be found. In in other words, that you can't uh, uh, search for him and find him, so to say. But I do think there's a unique and specific way at times in our lives, like now, where the Lord comes after us, where he shakes us, and it's ultimately for to shake us out of callousness, to shake us out of sin, to shake us out of a spiritual slumber, that we might know him and experience him, that there would be renewal in our hearts. I think this is that moment, and I do think there's a window. I do think there's a window. Anyone can seek him, but it better be while he can be found. There's an invitation in your thirsting, in your hurting, in your hungering to come while he can, like don't, don't miss this moment where God is wanting to do something significant in your life. Hey, a bunch of you, and I don't blame you one bit, I'd do the same thing if I were in your shoes, have asked me to make sense of what God's doing for you, which creates a little pressure, I must be honest. But I want to tell you this, I'm convinced that I'm not merely meant to translate and interpret the events of the last seven months in some prophetic way that everybody goes, oh, okay, and feels good about it. I'm convinced God has shaken us as a body, and that it's when we render our hearts to Him in a hot pursuit, in a way that's unashamed, okay, God, you're shaking, we're running. I don't think God's going to do something in one heart, my heart. I think He's going to do something in thousands of hearts. By the way, there's thousands that will gather this morning. There are thousands more listening in, and I do believe God will work according to his redeeming purposes for our good, for his glory, beyond what we can imagine, but not if we miss the moment, not if we merely try to escape, not if we merely try to disconnect, not if we merely try to push through, white-knuckle it, move on. I think in the rawness and the vulnerability, the nakedness, the weakness of this moment, God wants to transform our hearts. There's an invitation to seek him. Now, that while he can be found, as a pastor, that haunts me. Because I don't want to underemphasize to anyone who's going to hear this message. That's been preached in all of church history. That tomorrow is the devil's day, as J.C. Ryle says. That today is the day of salvation, as the psalmist writes. That Joshua says, choose this day whom you're going to serve. That none of us, and has it ever been more clear that none of us know what tomorrow brings? None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. There's something that goes on when we are callous to the Lord's calling in our lives. When we saw a life of Abraham, calling normally brings tests. Tests are normally trials. It's normally God calling us out of our comfort zone. It's normally God calling us to recognize sin and repent. It's God calling us to endure suffering well. It's almost always something that we don't necessarily want, but we so desperately need. 
And if we callous our hearts, I don't, God is patient. He's far more patient than we are with one another. He's far more patient than we are with our children. I can promise you that. I'm reminded of that every day, and I'm thankful. He's patient, 2 Peter 3 and 9, not wanting anyone to perish. He's patient beyond what we can imagine. But there's a, there is a sense, we see it in Romans 1 for a culture, where they're so callous that God turns them over to themselves. I just, I want to I say this carefully. I don't want to say something that's not precise and true. But this could be your last call. I hope you understand what I mean in this. God shakes. He might have been after you for years. You might have thought through things and reasoned with God and continued about your way over and over and over again. I just want to say pastorally. There's a day when the patience of God runs out. There's a day, C.S. Lewis says, when the author comes onto the stage and the play's over. And it will be of no use to say, I choose to sit down when you can no longer stand. And he writes that this is the day for choosing. That's the day for recognizing which side you've chosen. God. Jesus could come today. I'm longing for that more than I've ever longed for that. It's going to come one day. He may come here or you may go there. But don't put off the shaking. Don't put off the only one who can meet you in it. Meet you in your pain and bring forth a cypress. Bring forth a myrtle. Bring forth joy and peace. How do you get there? How do you get from pain to peace? Look what he says. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. That means forsake his thoughts. I'm just going to say this if you're like me, so let me just use myself as the example. Hebrews 12, I've always uh, really resonated with Hebrews 12.1. You got to put off that which so easily, in, uh, sorry, you got to lay aside every hindrance, everything that weighs you down, and the sin which so easily entangles. It's like the story of my sanctification journey. It's easy to be burdened with sin. It's easy to get entangled in sin. The command is, if you want to know what God's up to, you got to consecrate yourself unto God. You hear me, Harvest? This is a call to holiness. This is a call to lay aside those things which hinder your spiritual walk. See, I can't answer, I can't, I can tell you what that is for me. I'm going to do some of that next week. But I can't tell you exactly what that is for you. I can guess. But you gotta, you gotta run, you gotta let God in. You gotta be honest. There may be a love for God and a love for money which can't coexist somewhere deeply rooted in your heart. There may be addiction to wine in your heart. There may be addiction to sexual sin in your heart. There may be a habit of the way you speak to your wife or your husband that closes the heavens to hearing your prayers. That's a warning in scripture to you husbands. There may be a way that you treat your kids 
or the way you view your kids. I don't know, but I know there's that which is hindering you from knowing the intimacy of Christ that produces joy and peace, even in the midst of tragedy. And I know that the call is separate yourself from that. It, when God shakes, the first thing we should do is look inside and say, hey, I want to, a few verses earlier, he said, listen, hear me. You can't really hear God when you're entangled in sin. You can hear the command to get out of it, come to me. That's about as far as you can go until you come to him. Then you get to hear a lot more. God shakes. I, I just have this vision of so many of us, because look, we're human. I wish we were a body that there was no sin found among us in this room. Boy, that, that would be a, a wild inaccuracy to assume. Because we're people battling with the flesh that dies hard. Did we not learn that from Abraham? Even in his deep, deepening love for God, struggle. First thing you and I have an opportunity to do in a unique way is look inside and say, okay, God, you've shaken us. You've called. I've been embattled in this sin. I've felt in, enslaved to this sin for so long. I'm, I am repenting. I'm getting help. I'm going to confess where I need to confess. I'm going to turn. You know what the next thing he says is? Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. I'm going to repent and I'm going to return. Which gives me the idea this isn't just for non-believers to come. This is for believers to return. Now this is where the patience of God is so beautiful. This is where we... we uh, Satan would love to heap a lot of shame and a lot of guilt on us and make you think you, you're, you've blown it too hard to don't even think about returning to the Lord. If you do, you might catch a, you know, a lightning bolt on the way. Can I tell you, that's just, it's just God's not like us in that. Uh, he's not vengeful like that. Uh, Romans 8, that we were comforted and said, there's, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't look at you through the lens of your old sin. Your old sin is what keeps you from intimacy with him. It keeps you from the freedom for which Christ came to set you free. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what we're meant to have. We're meant to walk and we're meant to enjoy. We're meant to commune with God. Our sin is the blockage. Like an artery, this block. You clear that blockage, and man, that spiritual blood flows. Uh, the prodigal son... He couldn't, you know, he, he felt so much shame. He couldn't go back to dad. And so the whole way, he's so desperate. He's finally so rock bottom. He's heading that way, but he's thinking, what's my story going to be? He's going over a story again and again. He's so scared. You know what? This is beautiful. He never gets a chance to share a story. Because the moment the father sees him on the horizon, he runs to meet him. I love it. You don't have to think of a great story. So my kids always want to explain to me why they do the foolish things they do. I'm like, just know that I love you and don't do it again. I can imagine how you got there because I'm like you. Man, we return and now the Lord runs. And he runs to meet us. And he says here in verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isn't that true? We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have orchestrated the events of the last seven, eight months the way they were orchestrated. I know I certainly wouldn't have. I know you wouldn't have. God's not afraid to say, I did. 
God's not ashamed of a sovereign, redemptive plan that has uh, eternal weight in every one of our lives beyond we could ever imagine. He's not afraid of the, uh, the light momentary sufferings. He's not afraid of the present sufferings, Romans 8, that are going to be paled by the future glory that is ours in Christ. He sees all. He understands what we can't know. His thoughts are higher than ours. Therefore, his ways are different than ours. And so the invitation is not to understand fully the mind of God, it's to trust him. You and I get invited in to Abraham's journey to walk by faith. And here's a promise for you. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Is that not the goodness of God? So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, that it shall not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing that I send it. You know why this is such a critical hour of our week? Because the Lord's word goes forth. We rest, as a preacher, I promise you one of the greatest promises I rest in is the word doesn't come back void. Even if I stumble and stammer through it, even if I get my ideas mixed up and completely forget that Peter Marshall said it on December the 7th, the Lord's word doesn't come back void. So here's what happens. The word pierces, it, it, it comes in here, but it pierces your heart. And that's what happens to you. That's what happens to me when anyone else is up here preaching. And here's what happens. I don't know where your minds are right now, because I know when, when I'm sitting where you're sitting and I'm listening to the Word of God, the Word is coming upon my heart, and then the Spirit of God in a mysterious, incredible, beautiful, authentic, personal, and powerful way, He presses it in right where I need it. He brings conviction. He brings quickening. He brings illumination. So the application is a thousandfold, because the Spirit of God knows right where you are. And just as this meal is so important that we share as a body, so is every single meal that you nourish your soul with in God's word. Every time you open his word, there's a promise. His word, he's gonna send it forth. And you don't need me to preach it. The Holy Spirit's a far better applicator of God's word than I am. Every single time you open it, the promise of God comes off the pages. He says, I'm going to send it in, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Isn't he giving us a picture, by the way? Can we just step back for a second on Isaiah 55? He shakes. What do we do? The first thing is, rest in me. Come and rest in me. No, nothing else. Come to me. Come right to me. Repent of your sin. Return to me. Root yourself in my word. And, and what does he have for you? Here's another promise. It's a good one. You will go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. 
Uh, my word for you would be renewal. If you ask me, I actually got two words. I'm not going to tell you the second one because it's my entire sermon next week, and I want you to come back. But you got to come back. And if for some reason you can't be here, you got to listen because God's given me two words. The first one's renewal. Now, this is how God renews the heart of his people. He does shake us first. That's the beginning of something. That's the beginning of a window where we can seek the Lord while he can be found. And there's an opportunity, there's an invitation to rest and repent and return and root and be renewed. And then I I love that. Here's what would be ours in the most dazzling way to a community that's watching us grieve. Yours would be joy and yours would be peace. And this would be a sign to them of my everlasting covenant with you. Isn't that awesome? Rex said God is up to something. I know that he is. I think the first thing he is up to is that he is going to renew our hearts. Spiritual renewal in our hearts, in our body. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. We do that together. We thirst, we hunger, we ache, and we run to the Lord. And should we do it? I got a word for you next week. Should we do it? I want to close reading you a, a, a journal entry I made. Um, oh, I don't know. <laughs> On one of those days, between that day of January 17th and this day, and I was... Uh, I was just wrestling with the Lord. And so I wrote out this journal entry and wanted to share it with you today. I was wondering, what am I supposed to make of what's going on? What are we supposed to make of that? Really, it was, what is God up to? I make that God disrupts our plans for his purposes. I make that our days are numbered and our time is short. I make that the Lord's plans are higher than ours and his thoughts are as well. I make that God is good even when we suffer. I make that departing is far better, but remaining is for the joy and progress of someone else's faith. I make that pain now will certainly magnify joy later. I make that we're called to walk by faith. I make that he is or he ain't. I make that he knows right where we are. And he has a plan, even in this, for our good and his glory. I make that you must choose to hope in your circumstances or hope in God's promises. And I make that he's near to the brokenhearted. I make that pain brings unique opportunity for greater intimacy with Christ. I make that you don't wait to finish well until you think it's your time to finish. 
I make that there's a calm in the eye of the storm because the Lord is there. I make that we can try and garner control or surrender to the one who is in control. I make that we can try and understand or we can trust the one who does. I make that testifying to God's goodness in times of plenty involves humility but not trust. But testifying to God's goodness in times of pain involves both humility and trust. I make that faith is only faith if it holds in the deepest suffering. I make that man makes plans, but God directs steps. I make that it's never too early to start finishing well. I make that God disrupts our plans for his purposes. Those four men were running a really good race. God didn't call them home because they were running poorly. They were running well. They finished well. And in their home going, I have this sense that God's calling a whole lot of us out of our slumber to get on the track. That we might run well the race before us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. God, I sense the window. I sense it's wide open. I sense in these moments your calling. It's inevitable. It's, it's unavoidable. You're shaking us. Where do we turn? Who will we run to? Where will we go? God, I pray that you'd incline our ears to the heavens. You'd incline our hearts to you. That we'd come a-running. That we'd turn from our sin. We'd return to you. God, the the grace in that invitation, the patience that is so evident that you say, just come home. That we might root ourselves in your word, that your spirit might go to work in us, that we might be a people renewed and put on display for your glory. Oh, what a great end that would be from such a tragedy as we've endured. Lord, this is tragic in our eyes, but superintended for your purposes and yours. Lord, it's not tragic that Bill and Tyler and Tyler and Steve are in glory now. That's nothing short of glorious, and we celebrate that truth. That also is promised in your word, that what they received on that day is indeed far better. Lord, you've got something for us in this day. May we lay hold before that window closes. May we be a people who seek diligently you while you can be found. Oh, I beg that. Lead us, Spirit. Convict us. Lay on our hearts, each individually, what it is that we need to let go of and that what it is that we need to lay hold of. What besetting sin are you wanting to free us of that this will be a, a, a stake in the ground in our lives where we finally broke loose of the old man in some arena in our life that we've just been suffocating from sin, that we would find the air of your grace. Your Holy Spirit would work in us to set us free. That we might walk in freedom 
by faith that we might feel again the joy of our salvation, the peace that comes from your spirit that passes understanding. That you would draw us to you. That you would receive us. We have nothing to offer. And you said, come. By that which satisfies without money and without cost. May we come. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.